Hello, listeners. This is your host, Eve Sherman, and I am here to talk to you about seven young adult literature texts that you should be including in your classroom library. This is The Empathetic Reader. Good morning, everyone. This is the first official podcast that I am releasing in which I discuss the most important things that a teacher can do to make his, her, or their classroom a safe space that includes all students. One of the best ways that a teacher can do such a thing is to provide ample literature in their classroom library. Now, this is not something that you can just do by going to the young adult literature section of a bookstore or a library seat. Young adult literature needs to be selected specifically in a way that is inclusive of as many students as possible in your classroom. This means exploring different literature that discusses topics like LGBTQIA, individuals. Um, We're talking about racial identity, religious identity, um, different voices of adversity. So we're talking about a lot of texts that cover topics that might seem to be a little bit risky. Now I'm here to tell you why these topics are so important to include in your classroom library and what types of books you can find the best resources within. Without further ado, our first text that we are going to be discussing together that you should definitely have in your classroom library is the novel Rick. So the novel Rick is technically a middle grades level novel. So I would say that the targeted audience would be between ages 11 and maybe 14. So if you're a middle school teacher, this would be a great text to include in your classroom library. I personally am an ELA teacher, so books excite me. I know for some teachers that is not the case and even unfortunately for some students as well. Uh, Often, LGBTQIA topics and texts are overlooked. And this is because there are a lot of people who do not believe that this is something that should be included in their classroom or in the classroom of their children. Um, I know some families do not want these ideas spread to their student or their child but it's really important to normalize the fact that not every person is a straight, binary, cisgender person. So this text, Rick, is um, actually written from the perspective of a boy named Rick who is in sixth grade and he is exploring his sexuality. Uh, He's still a little bit too young to really know how he feels about other individuals in that uh, sexual way, but he's just learning who he is and he's exploring his identity. And Rick is written by Alex Gino, who is actually the award-winning author of George, which is an LBGTQIA plus book that 
has a similar character, but it's more of a prequel to this text, Rick. Now, I find that George is a little bit more of a young adult literature novel, so maybe for a slightly older audience, whereas Rick is written in a way that is very safe, um, but does take the time to explore topics that maybe we don't know how to explain or explore ourselves. So providing literature like Rick, which I will get more involved with in just a moment, providing this kind of literature really opens our eyes to the types of students that are going to be entering our classroom. Who is it that's sitting in front of us when we're teaching or around us when we're teaching? We wanna make sure that the space that we're providing for them is not only accepting of who each individual is, but welcoming, but inclusive. And books like Rick would be wonderful to give to students who do not feel like they are part of the LGBTQIA community. It's a way to educate while providing an interesting story and giving students a perspective that they might not have read from before. So now I'm going to give you a very brief summary of some key points that are in the text Rick that I think that you'll find important to know when incorporating this in your young adult literature library or your middle grades library, depending on whether you are a middle school teacher or a high school teacher. So Rick, the main character, is a very stereotypical sixth grade boy. He loves comics, animated shows, sci-fi, and hanging out with his best friend, Jeff who he's been friends with for quite some time now. Although his parents are seemingly open-minded, he's closest and feels most at home with his sister, Diane, and his grandfather, who he watches Rogue One with each week, and that makes a lot of appearances throughout this book, is his love for Rogue One and his budding relationship with his grandfather, which is quite sweet. Um, his parents often lay out very classic gender roles for him, as most do. So, of course, they assume that he is cisgender and that he is a straight male. They also assume that he's a little bit farther along with his hormones and his hormonal development than he actually is. He's still coming from that place of pure innocence where he doesn't know what really interests him yet. He doesn't know who he's attracted to at any point for a while in the novel. He's just kind of living life as a middle school kid. So as of the beginning of the text and kind of the middle of the text, he's really not sure that he's interested in boys or girls. And he notices that his friends are talking about girls in a very different way and more of an objectifying way that he's not used to. So a lot of points of this text are explored from his very naive and innocent point of view in which he's kind of confused about why people are making such a big deal about the opposite sex, including his parents. Um, his best friend, Jeff, is no better. He's kind of a jerk and is starting to treat Rick poorly and act negatively towards people who are not like him, who are a uh, heterosexual young male. And he really only cares right now about girls and sports, which neither of the two are interesting to Rick at all. 
So Rick, um, right when he starts out middle school, he hears about the GSA, which is the Gay Straight Alliance at school, and it's held by some queer girls that attend his school. And he's a little bit nervous, of course, to make that first step and to join the club. But he realizes that if it interests him, maybe he should stop by and see what it's all about. Um, he's very curious about what it means to be in the Gay-Straight Alliance and if that might be a place where he fits in. So as Rick spends some more time at the Gay-Straight Alliance, he meets some individuals that are part of the LGBTQIA community. And one of them is Melissa, who is a transgender female. And she teaches him a little bit about the importance of gender, pronouns, sexuality, and identity. And it's very eye-opening for Rick because he's not sure where he falls on those spectrums. And he's kind of confused about who he really is and how he would label himself. And at one point in the book, he thinks that he might be asexual, which is a term that he learned at the Gay Straight Alliance. So I'm going to read from page 16 of the text, a little excerpt of Rick talking to his sister, Diane, who's in college, about his sexuality and kind of questioning and seeing how she feels about it to kind of show her a little bit of insight into his thought process. What if I don't ever get those special feelings? Then whoever it is, you don't like her, Diane shrugged. No, I mean more like, what if I don't get them for girls at all? Do you get them for boys, Diane asked. Do you think I'm gay, asked Rick. Rick didn't think he was gay. I have no idea. You haven't told me. Are there any boys you like that way? No. Well, then, I guess neither of us knows yet. I wouldn't worry about it. You're just a kid. And besides, boys mature slower than girls. There was nothing to do but plunge in. Have you ever heard of someone being asexual? Sure. There's an ace girl on my dorm floor. But you can't be an ace. Why not? You're too young. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it'll all work out for you soon enough. Enjoy being a kid while you can. You sound like a grown-up. Whatever. You love me. So now we are exploring this interaction between Rick and his sister in which he's, he's really crying out for help. He wants some insight into what it means to be different. And he hears that, he, that his sister, Diane, knows someone that is asexual and identifies as an ace or ace in general. And... He has so many questions. He wants to know, could this be me? How can I learn more about this person so I can try and figure out if this is who I am? And his sister, while she's not close-minded about the idea that he is, she kind of shuts him down and tells him he's too young, which is really not helpful to him in any way. He was looking for her to give him a little bit more to work with when it comes to identifying who he is. But she kind of just brushes along the subject and moves on. This is a pretty pivotal point in the story for Rick because 
he's actually taking some action for the first time in discovering himself and his sexuality instead of just thinking about that of other people. Throughout the twists and turns of this text and this storyline, Rick not only starts to learn about what it means to be an individual, but he learns about what it means to be different. And he experiences things that I can only assume many, many students that are LGBTQIA are experiencing themselves in which people are not really understanding how they feel in which they're not understanding how they feel themselves. So this book is a great one to include in your library because it helps those students feel like they are not alone. And then the students who do not feel like they are part of the LGBTQIA community can actually get a little bit of perspective about what kind of questions their peers might be asking, to know a little bit more about how to address their peers that consider themselves to be part of the LGBTQIA community. And honestly, this is a great read for teachers themselves to understand a little bit more about how their students are viewing the world and how we can help them feel more comfortable and safe in our space. So definitely check out Rick by Alex Gino. It is about 223 pages, um, pretty quick read and definitely worth including in your classroom library. So after this, we are going to check out our next text, which is Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo. Welcome back, empathetic readers. It is my pleasure to share some of the texts with you that I include in my classroom library and that I think you can include in yours. So the next book that we will be discussing as part of our seven books you must have in your classroom library series is the book Clap When You Land by award-winning novelist Elizabeth Acevedo. Now, before I even start to tell you about this book, Elizabeth Acevedo is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful writer. So I'm going to just read a little bit about her to you so I can give her the credit she deserves as an absolutely phenomenal writer. So Elizabeth Acevedo is the author of The Poet X and The Fire on High, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, the Michael L. Prince Award, the Pura Belpre Award, the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, and the Walter Award. She is a National Poetry Slam champion and holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Maryland. Acevedo lives with her partner in Washington, D.C. And you can find more about her and her texts at www.acevedowrites.com. So the reason why I had to read a little bit about her to you is because I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Acevedo. She writes so, so eloquently. Um, her texts are so raw and so real and filled with emotion. And they all cover topics that are considerably controversial. 
So I definitely recommend that this text be included in a high school classroom, maybe not a middle school classroom. Um, I can foresee a few parents having some issues with the sexual undertones in this text and um, the drug-related aspects of what one of the character faces in her neighborhood. So what I love so much about this text, amongst so many things, is that it's written in verse. So this is not written like a normal text. It's a very quick read, and it almost seems like each sentence that Acevedo writes is so incredibly powerful in itself. So even just reading as little as there is on each page, it's just transformative. I mean, I just think she has such a way with words that absolutely captivates her audience. And it's almost like she writes from her own experience, even though I cannot confirm that that is the case here. So in this text, there are a lot of different things that make it powerful. So there are two main characters, and it's written from a dual perspective. Uh, the main characters' names are Camino and Yahaira, and their last names are Rios. So I'm going to read the description to you and then tell you a little bit about why this novel is absolutely breathtaking. Camino Rios lives for summers when her father visits her in the Dominican Republic, but this year, on the day when his plane is supposed to land, Camino arrives at the airport to see crowds of crying people. In New York City, Yahaira Rios is called to the principal's office where her mother is writing to tell her that her father, her hero, has died in a plane crash. Separated by distance and Poppy's secrets, the two girls are forced to face a new reality in which their father is dead and their lives are forever altered. And then, when it seems like they've lost everything, they learn of each other. So I don't know about you, but this just has me hooked already. I was so intrigued to find out how this man managed to have two different daughters in two different nations that did not know about each other until his passing. Now, as you can probably tell, like I said before, there are a lot of tough topics that are discussed in this text. So I think that a trigger warning would be very necessary when sharing this text with a student. Um, if that student has experienced loss or um, is struggling socioeconomically, um, maybe they're struggling to communicate with family members that they love. Of course, I would recommend that they read these books, but if it's something that they're not comfortable or ready to read, I do think that you should warn them about that aspect. Yahaira Rios, who is Yano Rios, that's the father, that's his daughter that lives in New York City, lives with her mom, and she is a lesbian identifying individual and she is very close with her girlfriend Dre <laughs> sorry Dre and she's very close with her mother but kind of has a strained relationship with her 
in which she kind of competes between her affection for her love for her mother and her love for her father. But now that her father is gone, she's lashing out. She's feeling alone and empty. But she does find out that there is a massive sum of almost a million dollars coming her way. Now, this unleashes absolutely unlimited possibilities for her and her mother. And her mother is determined to make sure that they get to keep that money. Now, Yahira is confused as to why that would even be a question. Who else would that money go to? And then we find about her sister, Camino, who lives in the Dominican Republic with her Tia. So Camino's mom died long, long ago. And Camino waits every year for her father to spend the summer with her. Uh, she is under the impression that her father is spending the entire year in New York City making money for her family and has absolutely no idea about his life there with Yahira and her mother. So she is blissfully unaware of what's happening across the ocean and she's really just naive. Now when she finds out about Yahira, it's obviously very shocking for both girls, but what's the most concerning to her is that all of this money that she finds out that her dad had is going to Yahira because Yahira's mother, his wife, was alive. Whereas Camino's mother, who had passed away, no longer had the rights to that money. So there's this tension hanging between these two sisters who not only did not know about each other before, but are now competing for this huge sum of money. And it really, really gets to Camino, who is in a very dangerous area of the Dominican Republic, because she's been dying to get out. Her dream for years has been to attend Columbia University in New York City. And she feels like that dream might be taken away from her when she finds out that that money is not going to go to her. So she feels like she'll never get out of the Dominican Republic or will ever be able to escape El Cerro, which is a gangster that hangs around in her neighborhood and is predatory. Her father usually was able to pay him off to stay away from her, but now that her father is gone, she's stuck in El Cerro's trap. And not only is she worried about her body and her safety and her life, but she feels like there's no way to escape. So she's feeling very alone. Yahira is feeling very alone. The person that they loved the most in the world is gone and their lives have changed forever. So I'm going to read a section from this text to give you a little taste uh, into Acevedo's writing. And here we go. So this is in the perspective of Camino, who lives in the Dominican Republic and just lost her father. I've never once felt orphaned. Not with Tia, dogging my steps and smacking my hand and wiping my tears and telling me what my mother would say. Not even though Poppy was far, 
because his presence filled the house. His weekly phone calls and video chats, his visits in the summer, making Christmas feel like a semi-annual event. I never felt like an orphan until today. Two months to 17, two dead parents, and an aunt who looked worried because we both know without my father, without his help, life as we've known has ended. This is in the perspective of Yahaira. One of Poppy's favorite bachata songs lifts itself into the room. It's about lost love. And although it's a breakup song, the lament to not think, to not cry, to not hurt for another man, the singer feels like it could be speaking to this moment. Before the song is over, Mommy slams her hand on the disc. The music stops mid-note. It seems fitting, I think, to end right in the middle. She doesn't have to tell me music is inappropriate for mourning. I only needed it for a second to remember a time before this one. So I think that you absolutely need to get a copy of Clap When You Land for your high school classroom library. Um, this can lead to great discussions about um, losing loved ones, about not really knowing who someone is until it's too late, about grieving the loss of someone that you didn't even know you had, which is your sister. So these two girls spent their whole lives at this point not knowing that there was a piece of them that lived somewhere else. And that has to be so traumatic. So I think that a lot of students would find solace in reading about Jahaira and Kamina's experiences as not only uh, children who have lost a parent, but as girls who are learning about who they are, how to be safe, and how to move forward after such a traumatic event. So definitely check out Clap When You Land. This is the last book in part one of the seven greatest books to add to your young adult literature classroom. So the third book that we're going to be talking about in our podcast today is a graphic novel, which for those of you that are unaware of what a graphic novel is, it is written almost like um, a comic book. So it's written in strips. There are a lot of images, which is totally taking over literacy as we know it. Uh, graphic novels are absolutely literature can be incorporated in your classroom and oftentimes students prefer to read graphic novels because they almost feel like they're part of the story. The images give them a better idea of how the characters are feelings and they even express things that maybe words cannot. So Just Jamie is the name of this text and it's written by Terry Libenson who is also the author of the Emmy and Friends series, which is huge amongst middle grades and young adult readers. So Just Jamie is also written in dual perspective. 
Um, there are two young middle school girls that are both very much part of this story and whose narratives are um, explored in this story. So, of course, there is Jamie, who is the main character. Uh, she is a girl of color and she is in eighth grade. Um, Jamie is a girl who, like many other middle schoolers, is trying to discover who she is and to really find her place in the world. These girls are both 14 years old, so it's the story of both Jamie and Maya. Jamie and Maya are experiencing the ups and many downs of middle school and trying to figure out, you know, where is their place in society? Who are they supposed to become as individuals? And Maya, Jamie's best friend, who she's been best friends with forever, uh, desperately wants to impress the popular girl, Celia. So Celia is your typical um, mean girl, I guess, as we might think of them. And she is just very desperate for both male attention and negative attention from her peers. And she's very judgmental and territorial of the people that she hangs out with, your classic popular crowd mentality. And as Maya starts to get closer to Celia, Jamie starts to lose her a little bit. And she's struggling to understand why her friend of years is becoming so distant and cold towards her. So Jamie ends up feeling like she might not be changing that much, but that Maya is changing and she doesn't know how to keep up. And while she doesn't want to lose her friend Maya, she's also struggling to get along with Celia, the popular girl. So at one point in the text, when tension starts to climb, Jamie ends up racing Celia in an inflatable ball race in gym class. And she knocks into Celia by accident, uh, sends Celia's shirt flying off, which leads to Celia's humiliation. Obviously, Celia cannot live with that humiliation or vulnerability and uses that as a way to make Jamie look bad. So this marks kind of a shift in the relationship between Jamie and Maya because Celia recruits Maya to be her crony. Um, she will not let her hang out with Jamie anymore and pushes Maya into cutting off the relationship that she's had with Jamie forever because for some reason, Celia is threatened by Jamie and took Jamie's accident in gym class as a way of, uh, she took it as if Jamie was targeting her. And girls like Celia do not take uh, that well. So Maya feels pressured and ends up severing her relationship with Jamie, who she's known all of her life. Jamie, of course, takes this really hard and, um, ends up calling these girls the loathsomes or girls who's, who, are, who are very judgmental and rude and don't value true friendship. They just value attention and superficial things. Eventually, of course, Maya realizes the error of her ways 
Jamie ends up finding new friends who really care about her, but eventually builds that trust with Maya again once Maya realizes how toxic Celia is. Um, this is a very generic, uh, popular girl versus genuine girl type of story, but the images are very powerful in this, and that's why I definitely recommend that teachers include this in their young adult literature classroom. The, the images are just, they're really telling of what the characters are feeling in ways that words cannot. For example, there's one image of Jamie at one point um, in which she is designed as a puzzle. And she feels like pieces of her puzzle are missing when she loses out on her friend Maya. And you can see a puzzle piece missing from her body as it's drawn out as a puzzle. And it gives you great insight as to exactly how Jamie's feeling in a way that, like I said, she might not be able to describe with words. So that was a very powerful thing about this book is that the way that the images shows the struggles that the characters go through as well as the coming of age aspect of the text. Um, there's another cute little image on page 74 in which the caption says, it sure takes a long time for Maya to answer me. And it shows a picture of Jamie as a skeleton with cobwebs growing on her, looking at her phone, waiting for a text. So it's really cute the way the author um, frames the images and how they complement what's going on in the text. <laughs>